All right, let's go ahead and get started. If y'all could uh, move in. It's uh, great to see you all here tonight. Welcome to Backstories. I'll just, a um, little per personal note, I'll mention that um, right now, Game 5 of the Stanley Cup Final is going on, and I'm missing that to be here. That's how committed I am to Backstories. Um, most of you are like, so what? You need to like hockey. I'm an evangelist for hockey. Absolutely not. And you, you are sent to the penalty box. Two minutes. <laughs> it's, a, it's a five minute major. And a misconduct, 10. You're gone for 17. Two minutes instigating, five minute major, 10 minute misconduct. Okay. Glad somebody knows about that. That's good. So, uh, backstories, uh, the, the whole idea is to go deeper than what we do on Sunday morning with a lot of our interviews. And uh, going forward, we have a lot of ideas of what we're going to do. I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask, and I hope they can do it, the co-pastors from our West Mesa uh, redemption to come in the fall. We're, we're going to skip July. I want you to know we're going to skip July because everybody in Phoenix skips July. They just do. <laughs> So we're going to skip July, and then we're going to start back up in August. And sometime in the fall, I, I know I want to have uh, Chris Amaro and Josue Lopez come, co-pastors from West Mesa. I think it would be great for us in Arcadia to hear a little bit about what it's like to do ministry on the front lines in, a, in an area like that. They are our only bilingual congregation. So if you can imagine how frustrating it would be for me if I preach for 40 minutes, Chris can only preach for 20 minutes because he's got, he's, you know, he, it has to be, everything has to be interpreted. So he, you'd only get to preach. I'm never going to do a bilingual congregation because so, I like to preach for a long time. So this is Stephen Ann Wheeler. Um, we'll get started. I, just tell us a little bit about you. <laughs> uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. I want to know, like, where you're from and how you're educated, what your careers were or are and all that stuff, so... Okay, um, I was born in Quincy, Illinois, a little agricultural town of 40,000. I'm not sure it's changed too much. Um, and went to um, 12 years of Catholic school, all-girls school the last four years. Then went to a business college. Uh, had, had That's an interesting transition. Yes, it is. <laughs> and then um, from there, I mean, I had two, two brothers and two sisters, so there's five of us total. Mm -hmm. I know Quincy. They had you do a, Quincy. They had an issue with a cow in a road one time when I was living in It could have been one of our cows. That's all I know about Quincy. It could have been one of our cows. Yeah, okay. Uh, Steve, <laughs> we'll get to more things. Well, do, you, do you want me to keep going? What was your career? You had a career. Yes, yes. Well, right out of uh, business school, I went to work for the prosecuting attorney. And I worked with judges, lawyers, policemen, and sheriff's office. And I went to the scenes of the crime um, and took statements. And yes, so it was an interesting career, and I absolutely loved it. Loved it. It changed my life. It when was did really, you really move good. To Phoenix. Moved to Phoenix in 1975. Let me just kind of backtrack, and I kind of I'll go with that and add in because I'll. I, okay. I, so what? I was a sophomore in high school in 1975. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I'm old. For how many years? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Oh, aren't 
penalty box. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so I graduated from, from uh, the um, business college and worked for the prosecuting attorney. Got married to my first husband. Had two little girls, and then lived on a property where I also ran a trailer park. Yeah, it was quite an entertaining trailer park. Um, anyway, so moved in, so we decided to move in 1975 to Arizona because we heard there's a lot of opportunities out here. So we thought, well, great, why not? So that happened. And then in 1976, the girls were one and two. Um, my, my first husband's job, he um, was a systems analyst and wrote programs. Uh, it, went, it kind of changed his whole personality. And um, he had gotten into a lot of drugs and um, a lot of affairs. And so it was tough. It was a tough, tough time in my life. Um, and so at that time, I'm trying to figure out how do I sustain and keep this marriage and keep my job and keep the girls and everything going on. And being a Catholic, I really didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ then. So it was really, really hard to figure out how do I do this. And at that point, my parents were I go back, my parents were raised quite a bit differently than a lot of parents. My, my father's mother, she was adopted to live on a, in a family just to work on a farm. And so my mother had to only an eighth grade education because she needed to quit her, her um, schooling to take care of the family because her mother got ill. So I was raised in that kind of environment where work was everything and you had to work hard. There was no entitlement, nothing was fair. And so we never thought about it. We just worked hard and we all did that. I was told when I was 12, you are now on your own to purchase everything that you want and you will pay for your own education and you will buy your own car. And so we, we never argued. We go, okay, that's the way it is. So we never thought any differently. Um, so I lived in that, but that is all building because all these stories, oops, all these stories, I really hope that you see the amazing work of Jesus Christ because he heals, he's gone through our lives and the brokenness, the rejection and everything that we've been through. I just see that second Corinthians, that first chapter that God comforts us through our tribulations so that we will comfort others. And I just see that in both of our lives and what he's done. And so and I look at my life and then on, and then after the damage that my first husband had done was pretty severe on me. And um, it was hard very, very hard. And so I left the Catholic Church. Well, now I got a double, another whammy. All my family left me too, because you don't do that. So I went from rejection to rejection. Um, my husband filed for divorce. He says he didn't lo no longer want to be married to me. And so um, I had to do it by myself. I didn't have any help, no child support, no nothing. So when I first came to Arizona, I worked at a law firm, and that's where I first met Steve. That was an experience. Um, <laughs> yeah. We have completely different memories of that. Oh, I'm sure we do. I'm sure we do. I picked her up off the street and brought her in and fed and clothed her. And... <laughs> no. No. Um, so... Um, I worked there for four years in the law firm with all these lawyers. And then from there, I, because I had to make more money, I just I managed companies. I did to two successful people in the Valley, and they're still around, and I managed their companies. 
Uh, and so I, that's how I survived, of just going through the hardships and, and the rejection and everything. Um, it, it, it took a travesty. I didn't have very high opinion of myself. I thought there was something always wrong with me. Um, and then after several years, Steve comes back into my life and decides he wants to, to be a friend and date me. And I said, no, thank you. I didn't want to date anybody. I was just going to raise the two girls by myself and live happily ever after. But meanwhile... Oh, so yeah. enough about you. <laughs> you. Are you ready to talk? No. But just to finish up real, real quick so that Steve can give his side of the story. Uh, um, is that God started working in my life, and I didn't, if I look back now, he was working all along, and there's the beauty of Jesus Christ. I didn't see it then, but I see it now, and he's used every one of those brokenness, every one of those rejections for his glory, and that, that is what I use to teach from, to live from. I am so passionately in love with him. And it took a while, though. It was a process for me to become a believer because I thought that Jesus was going to reject me, too, because everybody else did. And so when Steve comes in and he said, I want to know you more, I said, you can't. Something's wrong with me. Um, I don't know what it is. And he was the most persistent, consistent, drove me nuts person I've ever met in my life. <laughs> I take that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> of course you do. Um, so I told him, I sat down with him one day, and I said, this is why. I went through all my negatives, why you don't want to be around me. He says, just leave me alone, please, and let me raise my two girls by myself. I said, we'll do okay. We won't have very much, but I don't care. And so now I'll let you pick up. Well, don't we want to go back to my back Yeah, story? start, yeah, start yeah. to the beginning. Yeah. Start at the beginning. Well, long ago and far away, <laughs> in a distant land, yes, raised by a she-wolf. Uh, I, I came out of a suburb uh, outside of Chicago. I was born to parents who, were, uh, who lived through the Depression. Uh, my dad was probably the most influential uh, person in my life. Uh, he came from a real hard scrabble beginning. He was abandoned by his father and abused by his stepfather and uh, he lived in a one-bedroom uh, he lived in a studio apartment a one-bedroom apartment uh, with uh, his his mother uh, who was in and out of having different different men in her life and my dad never had his own room or slept in a bed until he went away to college and uh, got into a dorm room uh, and he was headed for a life of truancy but uh, a coach uh, a football coach turned him around he was a very good athlete he got to go to Cornell on a, a, a football scholarship, later went to MIT, got an MBA. Uh, he instilled in me hard work and morals and a, a competitive spirit and doing the right thing. And uh, So it, in the course of his professional career, we moved from Chicago out to here to Arizona in 1959, lived here for a few years. I went a couple of years to Kiva Elementary School, one year to Scottsdale High School, uh, which no longer exists, but then we moved to Boston. I finished up high school there. I was recruited to play several sports, but I ended up going to Princeton undergrad and then went to Cornell uh, for law school and then also went to MIT for an uh, executive course in nuclear technology. And then uh, uh, got married in law school to my first wife. Uh, we moved out here uh, right after law school. I was with uh, a large Western law firm where I was a managing partner for 27 years and then uh, became a uh, 
an executive at Arizona Public Service Company for 10 years and then retired from that about 10 years ago. And I just stepped down as the chairman of Honor Health, which is a big healthcare system here in the state. And now I serve on a bunch of boards. Had two children through my first marriage, ended up getting divorced, reconnected with Anne. Her story about our first meeting, she was gonna be working with me. And uh, so the office manager introduced Anne and Anne swears my first comments were, you can call me Mr. Wheeler. He did. Which, which <laughs> he did, he did. And supposedly spelled it for her as well. <laughs> I, I don't recall any of that at all. That's yeah. why she calls you around the home too. Right? Yes. <laughs> uh, so in any event, so then when Anne went on her way and then had her husband abandon her and she had to get her other job and then re reconnected after uh, my marriage fell apart. I wasn't a believer either. I didn't become a believer until I was 50. Uh, so, uh, and one of the reasons Anne and I both have such a heart for marriages is we've been through two very difficult ones and, uh, you know, God has blessed us with each other. It's sort of like, wow, out of, out of the destruction and despair that we had and look what we have now. Uh, but the lessons and the consequences are still there. And so I, you know, anybody that tells me I need to get a divorce so I can get on with my life, I go, oh, you, you don't understand. <laughs> Let us tell you a few stories. That's one of the reasons we have a passion about uh, trying to keep marriages healthy. So um, how do you guys uh, serve here at the church? Just remind people or if they don't know so that you, they know what you're doing. Well, I am a deacon here, and um, I also, well, I did lead a group of young single women, but I am still a part of that group, but I've asked three of the women to take it over because I believe in raising up leaders, and I think that they are wonderful. I've asked them to do that because I've watched them. I watched them walk with the Lord, and I just, I said, I will be in the background, but I want you to take it over. But I still do a lot of mentoring and discipling one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah. Shelby was a part of that group. Yeah. When she Shelby was, was a part of that group. Oh, I miss her. That's my daughter. She's in Houston right now. And Steve? I, I'm one of the two lay elders along with Jim Moreland. Uh, I also teach a men's Bible study in the fall and the spring back there in the uh, hallway. Uh, and I meet with uh, kind of anybody who wants to meet with me kind of about anything. I have opinions on virtually every subject. <laughs> I'm, I'm not hesitant to share them. They're, and they're usually worth what you pay for them. So you guys started dating uh, from a workplace relationship. And did you have to disclose that to human resources? No, we weren't, we weren't dating at that time. Okay, I had, so I had you left. Were separate, you we were, I, was, I, was, I was working at that time okay. for Chris Cole in real estate investments. I was, I was running his office, yeah. So, okay. no. And that's when Steve came back into my life, and I said, I don't think so. So. I said, but you take such good dictation. And yeah. <laughs> but I'm telling you, yeah, he drove me nuts. He wooed, he wooed. We've been married 36 years now. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's been an adventure. Yeah. They said it wouldn't last. <laughs> yeah. So, it's, I'm sorry. I, which one of you is going to tell the story about how he proposed to you? Well, I'll set it up. Okay. So, he had been wooing me, and, I, and finally I said, okay, you have really proved that you, you know, that you um, care about the girls and I, and you really love us unconditionally. And I said... Okay, let's take it to the next step. And he goes, uh, uh. There was a next step? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, and so I... Uh, no, but before for that, because I said to him, excuse me, I said, what were you, what have you been doing if this is not going any further? And he said, I'm nervous. I said, do me a favor. Would you walk out that door and don't ever come back? I get a phone call. So He's going out of town. So I talked her out of, you walk out of my life. So I stayed in the life a while and periodically got the question, where's this relationship going? And I'd hem and haw and say, look at the time or <laughs> come up with something. And so one day I'm headed off uh, on a trip to Washington. So I call her from the office and say, I'm, I'm going to hit my plane, just calling to say goodbye. And we get another one of these conversations about where's this relationship going and isn't it time to figure it out? And she says something like, well, you know, do you, would you ever want to get married? Well, yeah, someday. Uh, you know, would I be a likely candidate? Yeah, sure, of course. Is there anything, anything wrong with our relationship that would prohibit us from getting married? Ooh, that was a more specific question. And I said, none that I can think of. So you can't think of a reason not to get married, right? I, you're right, I can't. She said, is that a proposal? <laughs> <laughs> And I was so romantic now. Yeah. <laughs> I was far more romantic on the phone. I said, I guess it is. <laughs> and, and she said, okay, then you take care of arranging for the marriage. And we got married two weeks later. So yeah. in the course of two weeks, I went on my trip, got home, got my parents to come from New Jersey, my sister from New Jersey, my brother from London, uh, arranged to get married, and we got married uh, two weeks later. I spent our <coughs> wedding night at the Biltmore, where big, tiny, little... Uh, if you remember him, he's about a 300-pound big black guy with an all-black blues band, was playing in the lounge, and we had a root beer float in the lounge, and that was our wedding night. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Top that, you single people. <laughs> Best part of it is a root beer float, right? <laughs> so This so, is a church. <laughs> where... It's a craft church, yes. Steve. Um, so, uh, how did you come to Christ? Uh, wow. Because you were 50. This is. Oh, well, yeah. I came right at, pretty closely after, I got, after we got married. I started really falling in love with the Lord. And I'm thinking, okay, there are people that are, the God kept peppering in my life that were really speaking some words of wisdom that just really hit me deeply. Were, were you going to a church at this time, or was it just... No, I was going to a church. I was going to Valley Cathedral at the time. Oh, okay. And so, um, Steve Dever, you really didn't like that church. But I, that's where I really, really came to know the Lord there. And those people loved me. And I used to go to every Sunday and cry because they loved me. I'm going, how can you love me when nobody else does? And so it was, it was a challenge, but... I really fell in love with the Lord just through the, the certain people that he kept bringing into my life. And I was so passionate about it, but Stevie's going, I don't think so. I'll go to church on Sunday. I am, he's my savior, but he wasn't the Lord of his life. So it was a challenge for, so for many years, um, uh, I, the, Steve was not really a full-fledged believer. And so it was a challenge living in that unequally yoked marriage now that I learned was, and I didn't know it then. And so I started to get involved heavily in Bible studies and learning so many scriptures. And I remember I was, because um, Steve had asked me if I would not work anymore and be a full-time 
mom and full-time wife. That scared, that scared me. Be, because it's like... Because you'd uh, have to spend more time with me. Yeah, yeah. no. You know, because it, it was being financially dependent. Um, it was scary again because I came from nothing. It was, it was like, oh, I was scared to do that. And so I remember getting in, involved in Bible studies and just falling in love with God. And I said, oh, my goodness, I can't believe a God would love me. And Isn't this my story? Your story. Doesn't you want to know how I came to Christ? Or is this well, no, but you came, I, but you came to Christ. You okay. came to Christ. He became jealous of my relationship with God. That's what it was. I'm jealous of her story. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I remember teaching a Bible study in my house because I was a PTA president of Saguaro. One year they said, would you teach us about God? And I'm going, well, I've just been through precepts so I can teach you what I know. And that was, oh, Lord, I want to know you. And so... And they asked me, they go, how do you handle your husband not believing in God? And I said, well, that's not my problem. That's God's problem. I'm just the wife. And I said, yeah, I, because I try to convince him. You never try to convince a lawyer. No, no. She did a remarkable job of uh, realizing that it was God that needed to do the work, and she needed to do her part in all of that. So I came to Christ after and did, and I did it through God working through her and through our eldest son. My, uh, I had two boys from my first marriage, and he, uh, our eldest son is a pastor of his own large church in, in Arkansas now. He became a believer in eighth grade through his eighth grade girlfriend, God working through her, who is now his wife. So in any event, they were both sort of speaking into my life, but, but gently so, because you couldn't argue me into anything. I had to come to this. But I would go to church with her. In fact, I promised I would do that while I was dating her, just because I needed to do that to date her, and I needed to do that to get her to stay with me. So one day, she's out of town. Do we have time for the story? Yeah. yeah. Okay. She, she's out of town, and I say, I'm going to earn big points. I'm going to go to church by myself, just so I can tell her I went to church without you. <laughs> so I'm sitting at Valley Cathedral. If any of you remember it, it's a fairly charismatic church, which... Was Dan Scott the pastor at the No, time? it was... Um, before this was uh, before Don Dan. Price. Okay. Uh, who was the fellow who actually married Anna and I? Anne and me. So I'm, I'm at Valley Cathedral, of course, in the back row at the far end, so I can beat a hasty exit. And so it's a fairly charismatic church, which wouldn't appeal to my uh, stature and station in life at the time. And at the end of every service, he would say, okay, let's uh, bow our heads, and then we'll pray. And he'll pray over the congregation. And if anybody has a need, raise your hand. And people would raise their hand, and, and he, would, he would pray for them and would sort of divine what their situation was. And so for no reason other than God directed me. I'm sitting in the back, and I raised my hand. And he said, I see a young man in the back, and I can tell he's troubled. And he goes on and on, and goes, he's seeing right into my soul. And I was just so touched by this. I, th that started me. And then it was a bit later, uh, we had, uh, he had moved on from that church after he married us, and we were going to North Phoenix Baptist Church. North Phoenix church. Baptist Church then. for Sitting in the very back row. In the very back row. And they, like most Southern Baptists, do altar calls. So we're sitting there with the two girls in church one Sunday, and they do the traditional altar call. And I turn in, and I go, I'm getting up. I'm walking the aisle. And she looks at me in just complete disbelief. I go, what? Why? Do you have to go to the bathroom? I mean, that's <laughs> a... So I grab her hand, and we walk down to the front, and they pray over us. And about a month later, 
Ann and I and the two girls get baptized up in the baptistry at North Phoenix, way up top, and it was a it was a beautiful That's where moment. I was baptized. Yeah. Huh? Was I that, was baptized yeah, in I mean, that same baptistry. So it was a beautiful moment, and uh, you know, people who knew me kind of all my life go. Get get him to a doctor. I don't. What's the matter with him? <laughs> and so it's just been a uh, just a beautiful journey ever since then. We started going to a Bible study there together, our first time, and we were sitting in classes quite a bit, and we were going through the Bible, there are certain books of the Bible expositionally, and the whole time we're debating back and forth over what that scripture means. And finally, they said, "Would you two just teach? Because we're learning from your debating." And I'm going, because Steve loves to argue. Our whole marriage is debating. <laughs> I'm speechless. <laughs> no, I, you're never speechless. No, so there we, we started teaching um, a Bible study there. And we didn't know very much, but we knew how to study it. We knew how to just talk to them about it. And it was just reasoning out scripture together. And then... 21 years ago, over 21 years ago, our daughter came to us and said, would you teach us about marriage? And we both looked at each other and go, we don't know very much, but we can do it. And so we went to the pastor and said, what do you think about us teaching a young married Bible study class, brand new married? And so we did, and about 25 couples ended up coming. And it was, it changed our marriage to really have to study it and learn it. And so yeah, if you want to learn something, teach it. Yeah. I mean, that's an old cliche. Yeah. So, yeah. So <clears throat> let's dig in a little bit more on marriage. Um, there is hardly a monthly uh, lead team meeting or pastor's meeting for redemption, for all of redemption, all nine congregations, where uh, somebody doesn't discuss to some, <clears throat> to some level the trouble that marriages are in mm -hmm. in churches how difficult it is. Um, there seems to be this ever-growing need for marriage counseling. And um, I'm curious from your perspective, is, is there a singular cause? Is there, is there something going on um, beneath the surface? How do you see that? What's going on? Is it, is it that our expectations are, are way too high? And, and re, you know, the ideal is up here, and the reality is here. And you know, Henry Cloud, the psychologist, says that's the suffering gap. That's how much you suffer between the ideal and what your ideal is, and what reality is. That it? Um, wh what do you think it is? Wow, it's individual. God has given us, and that's what Frank always says: no Genesis one, no Genesis two, no Genesis three. God has given us a structure for marriage. We don't want to do that. We don't want to live in that structure. We want to live it how we want to do it. And, I, and it's really interesting to hear people saying, I don't want to submit to my husband. Why do I need to do that? I said, this is God's structure and it's protection. And we always think we can do something better than God. There's the main thing. We come in with baggages. We come back in with, he's the problem. But I will tell you, most of the time when I, when I see that I have a problem with Steve, it's not his, it's mine. That's what I tell her, yeah. <laughs> the one thing we agree on. <laughs> no, but it, 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 you are so bad. You are so bad. Yeah. See, what, see what I'm married to? 
yeah, yeah. Uh, there's not enough humor in a marriage. There's not enough laughing at yourselves. There's not enough friendship. You've got an agenda. It's, a, it's we now, it's a team. Mary Moeller, who is the uh, wife of the president of Southern Theological Seminary, has a quote, and I'm, I'm not gonna get it exactly right, but she says, God's not looking for superstars. He's not looking for somebody that knows it all. He's looking for a wife who will stand by her husband and follow him because he needs you. God created you. That Your husband needs you. He needs your unique gifts. And she says, I can't emphasize this enough. And wives don't want to do that. And I think they emasculate their man. I mean, because it's the curse in Genesis. You'll want his role. And so it's, we got to just, this is why we need one another to talk truth into one another because God's got it right. We don't. And you bring in baggages and you bring in uh, your ideas of what you think it should be and you don't have it right. So, the, I, but I tell you, when I hear someone says, I'm going to counseling, I'm going, that's wisdom. We need one another and we need to speak truth to one another. And we've been through a whole lot. And, and you know what? We haven't arrived yet either. And so what we're going to, and what we do is we still teach from our mistakes because we're all still going to make them. So it's not like I get married and I arrive. It's an ongoing process because this is my biggest, my biggest sandpaper refinement right here sitting right next to me. He refines me continually. So I, I would answer your question in part by saying I think the biggest problem I see, the, the root of discontent or uh, discordance in, in a marriage is people either don't understand what marriage is and what their roles are, or they know it, but they don't want to live it. And, you know, I think back to my first marriage when I wasn't a believer. I was married in a Unitarian church. I still don't even know what it stands for. Uh, but even if it stood for something back then, I didn't know what it was. Uh, we just got married in a church. But the marriage was all about, am I happy? And when I wasn't happy and my first wife wasn't happy, there was, well, there's an obvious solution to that one. You get divorced. I mean, complete craziness. And then when you learn that marriage is an institution God created, and he created it for his glory and our good, and he set forth principles and rules by which we can flourish in it, you go, oh my gosh, thank you, we got an instruction manual, let's use it. But the reason we don't is because of our sin nature makes us focus more on what we want than what God wants. And that was on such display in the early years of our marriage, when she was on fire for God and I was just a reluctant participant at best, and it was, she's getting more into God, that means there's less for me. I'd see her reading her Bible and I'd go, how come you're not spending time with me? I had it so wrong. The minute I started to understand the more she loved God, the more she would love me. And the happier, even if I was completely self-centered, this was a good thing. Go to church, read the Bible, you're gonna be a better wife, I'm gonna enjoy it more. Um, but, but I mean, I, I got past that fairly quickly to realize I could be a better husband than should be. But my point is the more she loved God, the better a wife she would be. And that was just so revolutionary. I thought it was zero sum. The more she loved God, the less there was for me. So I think it's people not understanding their role and the institution. I think it's them being too selfish or too lazy to properly try to implement it. But also, well, the thing that keeps coming is that you gotta teach one another because we're constantly changing. And so I wanna find out from him, how can I be the best wife 
that you can have, and I want to know how he, and he wants to know how he could be the best husband for me. And so it's an ongoing teaching one another. It's an ongoing humbling one another. Um, and, and it is. And every year we ask, we ask that, how can I make you more successful this year? How can I do that for you? Because that's what my role is. And I want to, and I love what the Lord says in First Peter. I mean, by your gentle and quiet spirit, and I'm thinking, that even pleases God. What a win-win situation. But I don't know why we don't do that. I don't know if we're not in the word, if we're just too prideful. But I just think we need, I just think we need to humble ourselves before the Lord because marriage is work and it's hard. And you've got to keep working at it. But to Ann's point, it does get better. I mean, our, we are having more fun and have more joy and contentment in our life and our marriage now than we ever did. Mm -hmm. It does get better with age. It does age well. So <clears throat> I think it's interesting. There, I, I just sense that there may be people in the audience who hear you only talking about what your role and your responsibility is in this marriage. And there's that flinch, I think, of, well, what about him? What, what, why isn't he doing anything? Isn't that part of the problem, though? It, 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 and and I'm, I'm relating that to the fact that <clears throat> so often I'll sit down with a couple, and you said it earlier, everybody has an agenda. I'll sit down with a couple, they've agreed for counseling, and, and literally the, the hidden agenda of each of the spouses is to get me on their side so we can fix the problem. That is a problem. So talk a little bit more about well, that. I'll take it a step further. Okay. In my experience, uh, we, you know, we usually do this separately. So I, I will meet with guys, just sometimes just guys, and she's not even meeting with the wife or vice versa. She'll be meeting with the wife, and I'll never see the mm -hmm. husband. But my experience, maybe just because I see more guys than I do couples, is uh, – I'm sorry, why am I looking over here? Yeah. <laughs> over here, folks. Uh, if, if guys don't step up to the role, uh, oftentimes you'll see – Unequally yoked in the sense that they'll both be uh, believers of sort, but there'll be different levels of maturity. And oftentimes the wife is a more mature believer than the husband, and therefore she controls and, and leads in a way that abdicates uh, the husband's role, makes it easier for him just to think about what he wants. And so oftentimes I just have to tell guys, you got to step up. I mean, let's make sure you understand what your role is, and then you need to do it. And they're all going, well, she's home taking care of the kids. I'm working. You don't know how hard I work, my hours, et cetera, et cetera. So they abdicate their role. And, and that's just crazy. So they think they're entitled because they work so hard at the office. They're entitled to get what they need in the way of uh, recreation and um, pampering and everything else, but w without giving a whole lot. And so it's, it's explaining to them what true Christian leadership in the household is. And this whole idea of sacrifice, it's, to your point, you know, my agenda. Yeah, the first thing you should think about is not what's my agenda, it's how can I serve in the way right. that God calls me to serve and to sacrifice for my spouse. Mm -hmm. And that's usually not the first thought that they have. Oh, I'm trying to sacrifice, and I just need more help sacrificing more. I, I never get that one. Well, one of the things, too, <clears throat> this is just my husband. He's not my answer. Yeah. We set each other up to fail because we're not in the word enough. The word is absolutely essential because we want our satisfaction from a person from a, or something else. We want the fulfillment from something else. He can't do that. He can't do that. I'm setting him up to fail big time, and he would be setting me up to fail. I won't let, I won't let uh, him, maybe his answer. I'm just his wife. 
We have to understand our roles and what we're looking for. You need a deeper re relationship with Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, this is what I hear over and over. I said, we need him. It's, you know, so again, to your point, and this is not a new uh, thought, but in Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, one of the things that he drives home is the idea that marriage is not for happiness, it's for the pursuit of holiness. And, and like I said, that's not a new thought, but he really does a good job of driving that home. The problem with that, though, is that even, and we're talking about Christians, try to tell a non-Christian that, and that, that's it, the conversation is essentially over. But even telling Christians that, most Christians react to that with the idea, well, that sounds really boring, and I'm not really interested in that. But the truth is, in the pursuit of holiness, it's actually drawing the two of you together, which is giving you greater relational satisfaction. Absolutely. Because there's something bigger than you that's driving the relationship. Absolutely. And that's Paul's whole point in Ephesians 5. Absolutely. That, that idea of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, but then the submission looks different. Mutual submission does not mean same submission, but it's the idea that both of you have a role, both of you have a responsibility, Steve's job, Steve's role is to love you as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So that, talk about that idea of pursuing holiness and how that really is the best way to go about this. I'm, I'm sacrificing for you going first. <laughs> no, it is pursuing God. The closer I get to God, the closer I get to Steve. That's just the way it works. It is pursuing God with all my heart, with all my soul, and all my strength. And one of the things that Steve always says to me, he said, and I, I'm not, I'm just saying this, I wish I had a curtain in front of me so all you could hear is the Holy Spirit and not see me. Um, but he'll say, you're beautiful to me. And I said, I know what that is. That's him. That's him. He's beautiful. And I used to always tell him, I said, listen, I'll tell you something. I can never be boring to you because the Holy Spirit lives in, in me and he's not boring. But it is. It's him filling me and living in me that it draws us together. You can't outgive God. I don't know why we don't pursue him enough and chase after him because he is the gold. So, you know, we don't have it perfect, as, as, as Ann indicated. She has a passionate style about her, as you can tell. It's, it's emotion filled with passion, filled with spirit. I'm a little more cerebral. If she says the Bible says something, my immediate flinch is, hmm, let's test that. As opposed to, wow, isn't that a great revelation? How do we live that out? <laughs> Let me write it down. What was the quote again? No, I'm going to say. He wants to debate me all the time. Yes. I, I don't know why. It's, it's a sign of a fallen world. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but this is a little bit of the iron sharpens iron bit because it causes her to have to say, I can't just just throw out some platitude, he's going to say, well, what do you mean? It doesn't even apply in this case. So she has to think it through. I have to sit there and say, I have to let the spirit, I have to let that word soak into me, and I have to let the spirit inform me as to how I listen to her, how I live it out, how I accept it, how I respond to it. So because we have such different ways of emoting and analyzing and, and even acting, it, it's, it's a great combination. So let me shift gears a little bit. Um, you, were, you said you were 50 when you became a Christian. Yes. And you were, you were in the midst of, um, you were a managing partner of one of the largest law firms in the West. Um, and then you went to work for APS, massive corporation. 
as one of the top three executives there for 10 years. So somewhere in there, you became a Christian. Was that a hard transition in the marketplace? How, that, how did that start to affect uh, how you viewed work and relationships at work, or did it? It, it completely transformed the way I viewed my role in the marketplace. It, it changed the way I allocated my time. It changed the way I related to people. It changed um, the way I viewed work. Um, it changed my sort of whole outlook on, on any number of things. Um, once you understand the theology of work as, as the Bible presents it, you know, your day-to-day, -day, what you thought was your day-to-day -day grind takes, if you let it, takes on a whole new dimension. And you relate to people differently. Tim Keller's got a, uh, a great phrase he uses in, I think, the book Every Good Endeavor, where he says he calls, when you're in the marketplace, you're called to be attractively distinct. And I thought that was a great way of capturing what our goal ought to be as Christians in the marketplace. Because my experience has been people who would call themselves to be Christian but are in the marketplace Oftentimes, nobody would know that uh, b because they're either too afraid or don't know how to present it, th their faith in a way that would shine a light before men as we're called to, or they find more of their identity in their work than they do in their faith, and therefore it's not important to them. You know, Schrader always has this great illustration when he was a, a relatively new believer and still at CB at the real estate firm he was with where there was a senior partner who was a professing Christian and had a Bible prominently displayed on his desk and apparently screwed Tom out of a commission big time. And Tom walked in and just sort of said, I, I don't understand why you treated me so fairly and cheated me out of this commission. You say you're a Christian. And the man's response was, well, I am, but I never let it get in the way of my work. And I just thought that's, that's just a great way of, uh, of capturing what we shouldn't be like. You, you ought to look, in my view, you, I started looking for ways I could put my faith on display intentionally. And I, and I did it for two reasons. One, because I felt sort of called to let your light shine before men. And because Corinthians tells us everything we do should be for the glory of God. And that clearly enjoy, it, uh, applies to work. Uh, and we should work as unto the Lord and not as unto man. I mean, the scriptures just replete with things like that. So, so number one, I think I was called to put my faith in God and, and his light on display. But secondly, it was a selfish reason that it would help hold me accountable. If people thought I was a Christian, I knew I was going to be judged in a way that other people wouldn't be because they'd be looking for things right. to say, right. yeah, and you're a Christian. Uh, and so they were looking for ways to, to sort of catch it on that. In fact, I remember at one of the uh, first board meetings of, uh, uh, of APS where one of the outside directors who was a... Uh, also an executive at a Fortune 500 company, came over and saw me uh, drinking a glass of wine at the reception. And she came over and said, "Can you? is it okay for you to drink? I didn't think you could drink wine. And, and I said, well, but why not? She said, well, you're Mormon. And, and I said, <laughs> it, it was because I had, I guess, it's hard to, I know it's hard to believe, sort of a goody two-shoes uh, persona at that point in time. And so she thought I had to be Mormon and therefore I couldn't drink. So it, my f some faith was on display. It was just the wrong faith. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, but, 
but to your but to your point is so I look for opportunities to to put my faith on display both as a matter of evangelism and as a matter of uh, personal spiritual discipline and I think we all should do that anybody that's in the marketplace should intentionally say how am I going to represent the image of God in the marketplace and I have suggestions on how to do that so so putting your faith on display in the marketplace so you, you bring in a box of tracks and pass them out to people and and no, harangue, rich, and rich, rich about, does that. Okay, <laughs> harangue them about coming to church or uh, no? You see, that's an interesting point. What does that mean? And and a lot of people decide I can't do anything because I don't know how to do it right. Well, if you know, you know, you've heard this cliche: if you know enough to believe, you know enough to share. So there are, way, there are ways of doing it. it. It's it's a question of attitude. It's a question of behavior. It's a question of words. It's a question of action. And you have to decide what's situationally appropriate. I was in leadership positions in, in virtually all of my professional life, so I had a slightly different uh, platform, and, and so in one sense I had to be more careful uh, about doing it. But I would pepper, for example, a lot of my conversations on what the company should be doing or what our mission should be or how we should do something by saying, well, my faith informs me that, that what would cause me to think that, that we need to be doing X or our guiding principle in this ought to be this. And so I try to put little subtle markers in the conversation <clears throat> to suggest I, I, I had a faith that was informing me. S second, I, I, whenever I would talk with employees, I would look for opportunities to get a sense maybe they went to church somewhere and so I'd engage them in a discussion. Uh, or I'd love to ask people, surprise some of you, I'd love to ask people questions. And so when I get to know them, if, if, I, if the conversation's lagging, I'll say, so what do you think the purpose of man is? And, and, and I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm dead serious. I, you have to have a context in which you can get there. But, but, but I will do that because I'm, I'm fascinated by the shorter Westminster Catechism about what's the chief aim of man. And because once you understand that, it's, I think it's a really helpful thing to know to guide your life. And as all of you can shout out, the chief aim of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So if you say, why are you doing anything? What's your purpose on earth? You've got an answer to that. And once you have that answer, you can start saying, well, okay, how can I put that to work in a particular situation? So I'd ask him questions like that, or if that was too religious, I, I'd sometimes say, so what's your view on such and such? And they'd get, you know, sort of a social issue, maybe a social justice issue or something else, and they'd say, it's this. And I'd say, well, okay, how did you come up with that? How did you develop that belief? What did you base it on? Why do you think it's the right one? Just get them to talk, and invariably, if they're remotely interested in the conversation, they'll say, well, what's your view? And I'll say, well, my faith would tell me it's X. The other question I love to ask, in fact, I gave a commencement speech, and this is my whole topic, was, what do you think is going to happen to you when you die? And I, so I gave, a, I gave that speech to a group of graduating seniors, and I said, I'm not going to tell you what my answer is, because I think that's my challenge to you as, with this new education you've got is I think you ought to try to figure that out. And you ought to try to figure it out because how you answer that question will largely determine how you live your life. And so you ought to figure that out now and get cracking. And it, you know, it's not a strange question because even if you look at Stephen Covey's you know, seven habits of highly successful people, one of them is begin with the end in mind. So you ought to be thinking about where you're going to ultimately go so you can figure out how you, if, assuming you want to get there, how you get there. And of course my other favorite story is from Alice in Wonderland, and some of you probably have heard it, when Alice is lost, 
And she comes across the Cheshire cat, and she says, I'm lost, can you help me find my way? And the Cheshire cat says, well, where do you want to go? Alice says, I don't know. And the Cheshire cat says, well, then it doesn't matter how you get there. I think that's such a great story about so many people who don't know where they're going, and therefore it doesn't matter how they get there. But I digress. In case you're wondering, Alice is a member of Redemption Tempe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> How about, how about you? And, and, and there's, you have sort of two areas there where I think you could talk about not only the marketplace in faith, but also when, when you have this group of young women who are in the marketplace, and they're, one of the things they're struggling with is how their faith informs how they're in the marketplace. What do you see in, in those mixes? Well, it, it's, been, it's really interesting because I was in the marketplace when I was past and going forward. Um, probably in a Saguaro High School when I was PTA president and these women asking me then would I teach them about God and I'm going how incredible is that for them to do that but in all of, St in all of St Steve's um, well all the young girls first of all I tell them there's a purpose for everything you are see you're being watched you like watching people they love watching you and it's like they're watching you're, you're on display we're all on display and so it's encouraging them that we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ all the time. And work is good, work ethic is good, and how we live our life out is good. But in a, we, I have been exposed to a lot of Steve's boards and a lot of these women, and so I look for every opportunity I can get to share the gospel, every opportunity. We have events at our house, and they come in, I will share the gospel. Um, I let, I wait for the Lord to, I mean, I look for every opportunity and right now we've got to go to an event in August and there's two women that said, would you teach us more about God? So it's continually making yourself just available wherever you are in a grocery store, anywhere you are, you're on display. So it, it to me, that's, we all should do that. One more, one more thing, Frank. When I was talking about the buzzwords that you can remember, like attractively distinct, one of the other things that I read somewhere that I thought was a great description of what we ought to aspire to in the marketplace, no matter what you are, is you know, be the type of person that demonstrates you know, fruits of the spirit, of course. But, but a way of summarizing would be, be the type of person everybody wants to work with. And I thought that was a great yeah. slogan to remember. Be the person yeah. at work that everyone wants to work with, and, and that'll be one of the ways you can shine God's light. There, you mentioned Tom earlier. Two things that uh, Tom, this Tom Schrader used to say all the time in his studies. Um, number one, if you're a Christian, you should be the best employee in, in, your, in your area, and people should know that. So living your faith in the marketplace <clears throat> is actually about working hard and, and demonstrating that there is purpose. Um, and so he, he used to say that. And then the other thing he used to say, and this is slightly related, but it's helpful, is he, he said, I think the easiest way to figure out, because I want to go into community now, um, I, I'd never heard this before. He taught it. But um, a lot of people say, I don't have any friends. I want friends. I don't understand why I don't have any friends. And he says, well, the problem is, is that you don't know how to go about doing it. He says, sit down and write down all of the qualities and characteristics that you would like in a person who would be your friend. Write those down, and then you go out and be that person to other people. But see, that's where it breaks down for most people, right? We want to be on the receiving end of that. We don't want to be the ones uh, doing that. 
So transitioning us into that idea of <clears throat> intimate gospel-centered relationships, friendships, community, you said earlier, we need each other. So I'm just teeing it up for you. Absolutely. I couldn't do it without a lot of women here. I couldn't do it. They keep me on track. They love me. They disciple me. They pray for me. They hold me accountable. Uh, I, they're kindred spirits. I, can, I mean, it's just to talk with them. This is why I love mentoring one-on-one. -on -one. Oh, you cannot outgive God. When I sit before them, I think, I think I've got the best ladies. That, that God, God's just given me the best ladies to disciple. They have a passion for God. They love God. And to talk to one another in the life, I just, I just see God smiling. It's just charging one another up to get involved. I'm a connector. I love connecting people with people. If I see somebody has something I, and you've been through it, I said, I want you to go talk to that person because that person needs you right now. So it, it is. It is connecting each other with one another. We were made for that. The, if you are a Christian, you are called to be in, a, in, in community together. There's no distinct. That's what Christianity means, being in community. And that's very important. Um, Steve and I really, truly believe that. I mean, I could not. We could not do it without this church. This church is very, very important to us. Yeah, I don't know how Ann does it. She'll have these meetings, and I'll go, well, so what's your schedule like for tomorrow? And she says, well, I've got a meeting with so-and-so at this time, and then I have another meeting right after that. Or she'll say, I have a meeting with so-and-so at 8, and then I have a meeting right after that at 10.30. And I go, wait a minute, what do you mean 10.30? mean it like at 9? No, 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 this will go an hour and a half. Or I said, wait a minute, nobody has meetings at last. Now, what do you talk about? <laughs> they talk about feelings. I, I don't get <laughs> I mean, you, you get with the guys, and it's sort of like I meet with you from 8.15 to 8.25. Great. <laughs> we won't need all of that time. But, <laughs> but, but so it's, it, the community looks a little different. But, but I think guys are much harder to sort of get connected into, in community. But for, forget the gender difference for a moment. One of the things I think we really have to understand is we're, we're called into community by God. And he makes it clear kind of every other line in scripture almost. You were, when you were doing Genesis last night, he sort of, he made us for relationship, relationship with him and relationship yeah. with each other. I mean, you can't find a higher authority than that. And then it just uh, trickles down through all of scripture. And so the real question is, what do we mean by community and relationship? It isn't just your friends. That's, that's by affinity because you want to. I think we're called to be in community and relationship with, with people on, on different levels. Believers need to be in community with fellow brothers and sisters, and we need to have relationships and be in community with even unbelievers because that's how we help the community yes. flourish, and we're called to the shalom of that community. So you have to think of community both sort of with a big C and a small C. So it's not just find people who you have shared interests with that you enjoy. And particularly when you talk about the church, we need to have a church community um, because we're called to be in a church relationship. And that means we're going to be with a bunch of sinners who aren't all the same, but we're united in, in our faith and in our devotion and commitment to each other. And so that looks different, but we have to work on that too. That's the type of thing you need to have an intentional plan for, at least from, a, from my business side. I say, okay, we got to, you got to work the plan. You got to plan the work and you got to work the plan. You need to be intentional in community. And I don't, we could do a much better job at this church in doing, of course, Every church could do a better job, so that's not unique to us. But, you know, when I think about that, 
I'll, I don't want to get off on that screed about how we could do that better. So that's the question you were supposed to ask. I, at the end, when you say, what question didn't I ask you, it'll be that one. Um, we'll get to it. What was the question anyway? I'm starting to dribble now. The importance of community? Yeah. It is, it is I, I would argue, it's the primary way that we uh, bear the image of God is through relationships and through work. Yeah. Those are the two ways, but primarily relationship because God exists in relationship. So for us to walk away or, or to be indifferent about relationships, I think, is going to just naturally present problems in our lives. Yeah, and, and I think the problem is because our selfish parts either want, uh, we want to be independent or we want to be alone uh, from things. And so uh, being in community is hard work. If it were easy, we wouldn't even be having the conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, and so recognizing that being in community isn't something you choose to do if it feels good. It's something that you have to, in my view, intentionally decide. And I'll give you one example. How many times, and, and we do it all the time, service is over, you know, we can get a reservation at first watch, let's get going. Or, you know, we get down to the original pancake house before they run out of buckwheat. And, and, and you know, <laughs> why aren't we sticking around longer to, to say hello to people and, and greet the people coming in at the 1045 and see who these people are that we don't know? We've never seen their birth certificates, citizenship papers. I don't know who they are. <laughs> and, you know, come to the 5 o'clock service every once in a while. See who your other brothers and sisters are. We're crazy not to do that. Yeah, that's true. So you, you have mentioned twice, so now I'm just going to read it, okay? You have mentioned twice, this is like your life verse, apparently. You say you're a connector, and you talked about the, the ability of comforting one another as a connector. Okay, so this is it, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. The comfort we receive from God and from others is not to be hoarded, it's to be passed on. And if you think about all the one another's in scripture, yes. love one another, forgive one another, bear each other's burden. I mean, the New Testament is just inundated with one another's. That's all about community. And these, these aren't suggestions, they're commands. Well, six of the commandments are about relationships with others. That was Ted Koppel's line, wasn't it? That they aren't the 10 suggestions. <laughs> That's before some of you were born, by the way. Um, and Ted Koppel's not a theologian, but he was right about that. All right, here you go, Steve. And um, what's the one question I did not ask you uh, that you wish I had asked? Have you changed your mind about your answer? I can't remember what my original one was when you first asked <laughs> of course me. You can. May I tell them? Yes. It may still be my answer, but only because I, I thought about it again. He wanted me to ask if Christians can watch Game of Thrones. Uh. Yeah, are you asking me, or that's the, yes, that is, that, that is the question I want to ask. Yeah. There was a nice, awkward yeah. pause. Yes. Okay, go yeah. ahead. Well, I was trying to think, was that a question, or do I have to give the answer? So because we, you've had some experience yes, with this. Well, we had some experience Monday. We, uh, our yeah. men's Bible group, those who felt like getting together in the off-season, I sent out a little article, can Christians watch the Game of Thrones? And it was a great article, not so much because it provided an answer to the question, but because it provided a method for deciding questions like that. Can I get a tattoo? Can I smoke marijuana? Um, you know, can I gamble? And all sorts of sort of social 
life questions. And the article gave a little metric about does the Bible give you permission? Does the Bible prohibit it? Does the Bible provide principles to answer it if it doesn't permit or prohibit? So it was a great little uh, uh, life matrix. And so we discussed that over at the Henry, and we had about 16 or 17 guys, and I thought we had a very um, uh, elevated conversation on it. You had to pay $2 to go get the, the PDF from the guy who wrote the article about what his answer to that question was. His answer, I paid the $2. Uh, but I didn't share it with the group because they, they, they didn't contribute to the $2. The, the answer, you may have liberty to, but it may not be wise to. And because it whole went into the whole question, if there are principle, if it's permissible, the question is, what does wisdom tell you about whether that's a good thing? There's apparently a lot of violent sex in Game of Thrones, and if you're one that's prone to pornography or uh, gratuitous violence, then maybe you shouldn't expose yourself to it. No pun intended. And, and then the other one is, what about, so it's wisdom and then it's witness. So the witness part is, if, if you go around saying, hey, did you see the Game of Thrones? They're going, Wheeler watches Game of Thrones? Mm, well, I guess it's okay to do that for, for that. so what are you doing to your brother? Does that cause your brother to stumble or not? Does it display Christ? Is somebody gonna be affected by that in a negative way? So you have to ask yourself that. And it's just like, you know, you pastors face that all the time. Can I, can I have a drink? Uh, if it's okay to drink, can I do it in public? Should I do it in public? The answer is, uh, there's nothing to prohibit you to. Should you do it? That's situational. So it was a really thoughtful way of looking at those issues. So the answer is, you probably could. I'm not sure it's wise, Frank. So Paul says two different things in two different letters that would relate to that, okay? By the way, I haven't watched Game of Thrones. But the interesting thing but was, I, at, at our group... Uh, nobody was, I didn't ask for a show of hands how many of you guys watch Game of Thrones, but, but one guy was really honest enough to say, I've watched every episode, and now I think I shouldn't have. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I, but I will also admit that the reason I haven't watched it is not for a moral or theological reason. I, I just didn't want to get involved because it seems like there's so many episodes. So it was laziness. Um, <laughs> so maybe the Spirit was working through me in that regard, but Paul, I think in two different letters, writes about this. In, in Corinthians, he says twice. Uh, in First and Second Corinthians, he says, all things are permissible, but not all things are profitable. So he's putting the ball back into our court, but he's also under the assumption that you're filled with the Holy Spirit to guide you. Mm -hmm. And then in, in Romans, he would call them, these are disputable matters. And he specifically talks about something that you said, does it become a stumbling block for your brother or sister? And those are questions that we need to wrestle with. And one of the things, um, you were telling me about this Monday morning issue, and, and I think you mentioned it here, but the great thing about that conversation wasn't that you were trying to get at whether or not you were just going, yeah, it's okay, or no, it's not, but rather, how are you going about making that decision? What's the methodology? What's the wisdom that we're applying? How are we getting there? How do we think critically and theologically about these things? Because we don't do that well anymore. So what would be your question? Did I give you one? Yes, you did. Do you want me to remind you? It's, it's, it it happens to be a passion of mine, too. Yes. Do you remember now? Yes, I do. Okay. Why are we not reading the Bible? Why are we not reading this book that is a gold mine? that changes our lives, the only thing that will change our lives. 
the only thing that will make my marriage work, the only thing that will help me die to self, I don't understand. Because it, I, I was talking to a young woman and she said, I said, tell me how your soul's doing. And she said, I'm okay. And I said, why just okay? I said, are you reading your Bible? And she said, ah, don't need to every day. And I said, you're going on your laurels. We have new mercy, new grace every day that the Lord wants to give us. And you want to go on leftovers. You're in dangerous territory. Are we, because what we're going to do then is look for something else to satisfy us, to fulfill us, to make us complete. We're going to, we're going to find something else to do it because we are created to worship. We are designed that way, and if we're not worshiping God, if we're not in the word, if we're not being directed that way, we will find other places to go. I can't do without it. And I'm just going, if I can encourage you to do one thing, you want to, like I say, he's not my answer. And I don't want to set him up by thinking it's his fault all the time because I'm not happy or something's not right. We do that to one another. If somebody lets us down, the Lord always shows me, when you're disappointed in somebody, usually it's, I want to change you. Because that means you haven't died in that area. So it's a continually dying. It's one thing that's going to make me die, is that. Because what we want, what gives God glory is himself. He wants to see himself in me. So that's what makes us beautiful. Not ourselves. It's him. And so if I can encourage you, and I pray get into it. Because I tell you what, I was a Catholic. I was afraid of the Bible. I was told I would never understand it. And now I have the Spirit who comforts me, who leads me, and guides me through the Word. But I sit with women, and we reason out Scripture together. It's beautiful. So that would be my... So let me... Yeah. Let me, let me wrap up by asking you a question that I never previewed for you. Um, it just came to me. Um, you're both in leadership here at Redemption Arcadia, which I tell you, I really appreciate everything that both of you do uh, in that regard, in that capacity. And we've sat through some really hard stuff together, and we've sat through great victories. Um, is there a way you could sum up what, what, what would be your greatest hope or desire for Redemption Arcadia, either one of you? I'm putting you on the spot. I've never seen that far off I know, distant look I know. in Steve's face before. No. <laughs> I have so many profound thoughts. <laughs> is that what it is? Yeah. Um, we would disciple one another. We need to disciple one another. We need to be walking with one another and not alone and speaking into one another's lives. Discipling would be a big thing. Okay, here you go. Just write that down. We need to be discipling one another. I couldn't agree more. We have good friends here. We come, we get fed, we consume. I don't think we give enough of ourselves and I don't think we connect enough with each other. 
All right, well, I'm going to pray, and then they're going to thank you for coming and doing this uh, tonight, all right? Um, Lord God, we are grateful for, again, uh, how you call and equip your people, and uh, we don't believe in coincidences, and the fact that you've put Ann and Steve here uh, is for our blessing and for your glory, and so we praise you for that, we celebrate that, and, and we're, we're thankful for that. God, I pray for Steve and Ann in their various ministries, their various roles, their various leaderships. Um, I just pray that you would empower them and continue to fill them with your spirit. Um, God, I pray for not only their marriage and also the, the marriages of their, of their children, but also for all the marriages in this, in this uh, congregation. And I also pray for all the singles who are wrestling with whether or not they're called to be married and, and if they are, who that might be, and if they're not, how that's going to uh, work out. And if they're not, I pray that this church would be the spouse that they're supposed to be to people who are given the gift of singleness. Fill us to be able to do that. I pray for uh, the challenges that we all have in the marketplace to be able to share our faith, to be able to see those open doors, to be able to uh, walk in faith and, and be able to go through those doors by the power of your spirit by the filling of, of uh, the, all the empowerment that your resurrected son gives us. And God, I pray for our communities. I pray for our RCs and all the other ways that we uh, get together and we, we practice faithful, intimate, gospel-centered relationships. God, thank you for that. Thank you for the wisdom that was shared here tonight. Uh, we've been blessed, and I pray that you've been glorified, and I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for being here tonight. Thank uh, Stephen and Ann.